As we continue our study in the Acts of the Apostles, remember that the way the gospel is going to go out, we saw it in chapter 1, that it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so there's a principle in play that's now going to be practiced by the apostles. And tonight we'll get to that portion where the apostles will stay in Jerusalem. The gospel will go out first to the very local area, Judea, and then to Samaria, which is about between 30 and 60 miles north of Jerusalem, to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and into the foothills, which would take you all the way from uh, the northern suburbs of modern Jerusalem all the way up into southern Lebanon. And so this is an area of a very difficult uh, region for the Jewish people. Because when the Jewish people were conquered by the Assyrians, what happened with the Assyrians is the Assyrians, when they took over a land or took over a region, the way that they generally conquered is they killed off all of the men and then they themselves took as second, third, and fourth wives the wives of those whom they conquered. And so they interbred with the Jewish women. The result of that inbreeding of the Assyrians with the Jewish people were the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans were viewed by the Jewish people as really a reminder of seven, almost 800 years of a degradation, a stain, a blot on the Jewish people. And so the Samaritans were hated by those who were full-blooded Jews. Now bear in mind, they were actually related by blood, and so in many ways they were at least half-brothers and sisters, many of them. But they were hated. It was a very difficult thing for the Jewish people. And so all they had to do was travel a little bit north, and they're being reminded of having been captured by the Assyrians and then sent away to captivity into Babylon. And so it was an ugly thing in their memory. As we dig into chapter 8 tonight, we're going to get to meet Saul of Tarsus. We're going to see four different men. We'll see Saul, we'll see Simon, we'll see Philip, and then we'll see this Ethiopian eunuch. And they are all really responding to one thing, and that's the gospel message. How does the gospel message, as it goes forth, because the salt shaker, we're all supposed to be salt and light, amen? So the world that we live in, you can kind of look at it as a salt shaker, and we're supposed to be shaken out as salt into this world. Well, the salt shaker is about to really get shaking. And so these men are all going to be affected by the gospel in very different ways. And that's exactly what happens in our world. Some people hear the gospel, and they're going to be a whole lot like the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's, I need Jesus. I want to go get baptized. Some of them are going to be like Philip. This is the calling on my life. I want to, I want to go share this message. There are still some a whole lot like Saul of Tarsus that are absolutely in pure raging hatred towards the gospel message. And there are some like Simon who want to use it for their own personal gain. And so we have four different responses, four very different men. And because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a concept, it's not an idea, it's not an ideal, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the reality of God. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so that simple message of Jesus Christ, God's own Son who came into this world, lived a sinless life at 32 years of age, is tried illegally six times, he's then beaten, he's hung on Calvary's cross, he dies, he's buried in the grave, he's raised three days later, and lives for that simple gospel message that God sent Jesus into the world, that the world through him would be saved, brings a lot of different responses to this day. And so 
Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you. We thank you that most, if not all of us here tonight, certainly most, have responded to that gospel message. That you love us, you care for us, you desire that all men be saved, and we responded to that message. As we study the responses of these four men and what they do with that gospel, Lord, the good news that you love mankind and that you want to spend eternity with us in fellowship. Lord, that you want us in your heaven. God, would we respond in a way that's appropriate? Would we be like Philip the evangelist? Lord, would we be like that Ethiopian eunuch who could not wait uh, any longer to come to faith? Would we never be like Saul before he became Paul and a persecutor? And would we certainly not ever use your gospel for gain? We bless you. Thank you for this time tonight. We ask these things in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Verse 1 here uh, in Acts chapter 8. The salt shaker shaken. Now remember, the gospel is rather like, uh, if, if you've ever traveled, how many of you have traveled up through the high Sierras and been on some of the roads that get up further into the high Sierras and you, you go through and all of a sudden you come on the road and it is literally blasted out of solid granite. You see, God's gospel is like that. It's able to blow up the hard rock of, of the hearts of men. And so that dynamite's going off now in the, in the region of Jerusalem and in Judea. It's about to go to Samaria, and then it's going to go out into the uttermost parts. And now it says in verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death. Whose death? Stephen's. So this is Saul of Tarsus whom we're going to see in chapter 9, become the Apostle Paul. This is Saul before Saul is Paul. This is a man who spent his entire existence up to this point being, in essence, as wonderfully and beautifully Jewish as one could be. He understood the first five books of our Old Testament, the Torah, the five books of Moses, he undoubtedly could quote from memory most of it, if not, maybe even all of it. He was a man learned in the, the Old Testament scriptures. He certainly believed that there was exactly one God. He would repeat the Shema, the Lord thy God is one. He was not a polytheist. He didn't believe in many gods. He believed in the one true God. And so interestingly enough in Paul's life, though he is consenting to the death of Stephen, he's part of that group. He likely was a member of the very council that put Stephen on, on death's door. The garments are laid at his feet. At that time, a great persecution, it goes on to say, arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now remember, the church is largely only at Jerusalem. It's only in Jerusalem. This is within a very short period of time of the actual ascension of Jesus. We're in that first year of the church's growth. The church is still centered. It's very Jewish. Remember all of the apostles? All of the first believers, for the most part. We don't know exactly if there was a smattering of a Gentile here or there, but for the most part, these are Jewish believers, and they're in Jerusalem. They're still, probably most of them, we certainly know that Peter, because we're going to see a little picture of him, Peter was still keeping kosher. And so he was still celebrating uh, the Sabbath, Shabbat. He, he still kept a kosher home. He wasn't eating anything unclean. There, there was still a very, very, very deep Jewish influence. And we have, as, as Gentile believers, we have Jewish roots, Amen. You want to look at it that way, our, our Messiah, our King, our, our Lord was a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. And so we owe a deep debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. Our, our faith is deeply rooted in Judaism. That's why when we talk about it in a cultural context, we say Judeo-Christian, amen, because the Judeo portion of it was before the Christian part of it. 
In other words, what we know about Jesus and the Old Testament preceded the actual coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we have a Jewish history as well as a Gentile history in that sense. At that time, a great persecution rose against the church that was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. So you can see it, Jerusalem, Judea, that's the surrounding foothills. So when you talk about Judea, that would be the area directly around Jerusalem. That would have been up to Nazareth. That would have been down to Bethlehem, to the south, over to the coast, Gaza, Ashdod, uh, up to Caesarea Maritima, which is also on the coast, that, that region directly around the city of Jerusalem. So the temple is still there. It wouldn't be destroyed until 70 AD. And so the temple is still on the Temple Mount. And so now the salt's being scattered. It's being shaken out. Except the apostles. They stay in Jerusalem. Because again, there's work to be done. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. And so I believe he received a, a, a very proper Jewish burial. And so there would have been a time of mourning. He was cared for uh, very delicately and very, uh, very much with respect. And so Stephen is now buried. He's been martyred uh, because he refused to recant his testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And then it says in verse 3, as for Saul, this is not a great start for the Apostle Paul, amen? Of course, we can look ahead because we kind of know where this is going. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. It literally means to rip to pieces. He tried to act as a wild beast to tear apart the church. So incensed was this man, so enraged that what he had studied in the law had now been supplanted by the simple saving grace of Jesus Christ. He was enraged. He made havoc of the church, entering every house. And of course, this is a generality. We find lots of them in Scripture. I'm sure he didn't go to every single house in Jerusalem. But the picture is he went house to house. You can imagine him going door to door, kind of like we would go and pass out maybe tracts or whatever. You can, you can see the Apostle Paul going door to door, house to house, knocking on the lintel of the door and saying, you know, are you one of those people? Or are you a believer in Messiah? And dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now remember, the Sanhedrin, of which he was a member, had the capacity to do that with fellow Jewish people. And so he's acting kind of as the religious police, if you will, in that capacity. So to some degree, and this is where we must give Saul of Tarsus a little bit of a break, the knowledge that he had, what he understood about God, he believed he was doing the work of the Lord. And so, whereas we see it from a Christian perspective, he is seeing it from a very Jewish perspective, that there was one God, there was one way to know that one God, and that one way to know that one God was through the feast days, the temple, everything that the Jewish people had been doing for 1,500 years, by the way. This was not something new. And so, the Apostle Paul, a zealous defender of the Jewish faith committed them to prison, and therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching, notice what they preached, the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, amen? What Paul the apostle would actually write to the Roman Christians by the time he gets to chapter 10 of that book. And so we find the gospel's first missionaries going out. When we talk about missionaries, we talk about missionaries going all over the world, right? When we think of that type of a context, we're, we're thinking about going to unreached peoples. Here's the crazy thing at this time. Over the next hill was an unreached people. The next valley was an unreached people. If you went down to Jericho, that was unreached people. If you traveled to the north, to Caesarea Philippi, unreached people. If you went to Kadesh Barnea, which would be in Lebanon today, unreached people. 
All you had to do was leave Jerusalem, and it was unreached people. So these truly were missionaries. They were going where people had not heard the gospel. And so you need to kind of lock it into your head. These are actually the first missionary journeys. You can go across the street. That's an unreached people group. You can go out to the coast, to Jaffa. That's an unreached people group. So everywhere that people went, this is the beginning of the spread of the gospel. And it happens like wildfire, very quickly. Saul looked on with approval at the murder of Stephen. And so we're going to find out by the time he writes to Timothy, he is so deeply grieved in his own spirit and his own heart. As he writes to Timothy, he says to Timothy, because religion had blinded his eyes, he said, I obtained mercy because I did what I did ignorantly. I didn't know. I was blind. And so the beautiful grace of God, even covering this horrible thing that Paul has consented to. And I want to remind you that when you knowingly consent to something, uh, it's very much the equivalent of actually doing it. That's why an accessory to murder is charged with murder. That's why we have that in our laws today. If you partake in something, you may have not pulled the trigger, but you you drove the getaway car. Paul basically was driving the getaway car for the Sanhedrin. He's holding the clothes. He's consenting to the murder of Stephen. And so it was a serious, serious thing. Now, we don't know why Paul did that. There are a lot of reasons that have been kicked around. But Saul, as he does these things, was he perhaps maybe a little too refined? Remember who he is. He was this incredible guy that was, from all intents and purposes, about as Hebrew as you could possibly get, in a good way. I think it's important that we give credence to the fact that up until the time of Christ, the Jewish people were the only people who actually had access to the true and the living God. And in fact, he dwelt with the Jewish people. So from that standpoint, the Jewish people, when the high priest would go in on that day, Yom Kippur, those 10 days of awe, that we just passed through on the Hebrew calendar, when when the Jewish high priest would go in, he was literally doing something that only one group of people on the entire earth could actually do. He would go in and meet with God. And so they zealously guarded that incredible relationship that the Lord had given them. You know, when religion gets in the way of relationship... It almost always turns out like this. When religion gets in the way of relationship, it almost always turns out like this. You get people zealous for the wrong things, very often for power, very often for position, very often resulting in inordinate passion. And so as Stephen is is martyred, It sets forth an incredible persecution against the Jerusalem church. And and in fact, nearly all of that persecution came from the Jewish people. It was kind of like the the last gasp, if you will, of legalism was bearing down on the grace of God. And there are still people that, that try and do that today, people that prefer religion over relationship. And yet God wants to have a relationship with us. That's the beauty of grace. When you think about where you stand as a Christian, you have access to God the Father through Jesus the Son because of faith that was given to you, which is a gift, which results in grace, which redeems and pays your sin debt, which allows you to stand wholly, completely without spot and blemish, as if you had not ever sinned, even though you have that debt fully paid and canceled, and the righteousness of Christ is put into your account where there once stood sin. Mind-boggling. Now imagine that for your whole lifetime, as was the case of Saul, you believe the only way that could happen is all of this religion that you had come to know and actually love. They love the fact and actually could claim a very unique relationship with God because the Jewish people are still God's chosen people and God loves the Jewish people. 
That's why every believer has a debt to the Jewish people. It's not the same debt as we have to Christ, but it is debt because our King of kings and Lord of lords is of the tribe of Judah. Amen? And, and so for them, they're going, you, you mean the keeping of the law is no longer necessary? You mean the feast days? We don't have to. You mean the sacrifices no longer do anything for me? You mean everything that I studied has been supplanted by the simple grace of God? And so the reaction to some degree was probably one that most of us in this room would have had as well had we invested our entire life in being as perfect a Jewish person as we could possibly be. And so that persecution comes from the Jewish people. Now remember there in verse 8 of chapter 1, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts. Keep that in the back of your mind for tonight. Because the Jerusalem church had very little vision beyond Jerusalem itself. They had enough problems of their own Saul's in the midst of this, and you can almost see the enemy working through this very, very wonderfully zealous Jewish man to try and knock the church out in its infancy. Because if that had been successful, if the Apostle Paul and the leadership, the Sanhedrin, had been able to accomplish what they set out to do, we'd all still be walking in darkness. And praise God for his grace. Amen. When you read all of the book of Acts, which we're going to see Paul all the way through the end of the book, basically. When you see him and then you see him also in the letters that he authored, specifically the letter to the church at Philippi, you find several things about him. He was born in Tarsus, which is in Sicilia. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says that to us in the third chapter of Philippians. He was the son of a Pharisee. So not only was he himself a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was actually in the line of Pharisees. So it was in his blood, if you want to look at it that way. He was a Roman citizen as well. So he kind of had the best of both worlds. And so no wonder he was so zealous and no wonder that the gospel message to him as it is to those who are not saved, it was a major offense. It's like, this is, this is crazy. You mean, you mean God's grace is free? I've actually had people tell me that. They can't believe it. It's so amazing. You know the old saying, it's too good to be true? A lot of people think that about the grace of God. It's, it can't possibly be that simple that I can believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Okay, what am I missing? What else do I have to do? No, no, really. You can actually believe on his name. Now remember, believing on his name means to believe in all that he is. So it, you have to understand the gospel in order to believe the gospel. So you've got to know that Jesus is God's only son. You have to know that he lived a perfect, sinless life. You have to know that he came to this earth very specifically so that we could be saved. There is something to know about the gospel, but it's pretty simple. That Jesus was tried, he was put to death, all of those things that comprise the basic gospel message to believe on the name, which the name in this context that Scripture writes it, is the full and total understanding of who Jesus is as it is necessary, which is just the simple part that he's God's only son, perfect in all of his ways, and he died for us. Substitutionarily died for us. To the Jewish person, they're like, you don't have to keep kosher? You don't need to celebrate the Shabbat? You mean I can walk more than a quarter of a mile on Friday after sundown? You mean I can actually do something in my garden and I'm not sinning against God? When I go by the temple and, and, and I see everything's going on in there... I can actually go sit on a rock and talk to God. I don't need to go inside that multicolored gate and go through the linen fence and into the temple compound and talk to a priest about I can go to God myself. Yes, you can go to God yourself. And so Saul's struggling with that. 
like many people today, struggle. As hard as it is for us to believe we've been saved by grace, but they struggle with the grace of God. That was Saul. His zeal for the law was just part of his life. It's part of who he was. And that was why he persecuted the church. He obeyed what little light he had. He had some of the light. Because in the Old Testament, as he's reading through Isaiah, he's probably scratching his head going, you know this Jesus guy that we put to death? Kind of a whole lot like the guy Isaiah was talking about, being the Messiah. So I believe that God was already at work in Saul's life at this point in time. It's just the wheels are turning. And you ever notice, have you ever talked to somebody who's this close to becoming a believer, how crazy against God they can get? It's just like that last little bit, and Satan's got his claws in that person, and it's just like they go off on being a Christian. It's like, no, I don't want to know anything about Jesus, when actually what they're really saying inside their heart is, I so desperately want to, but I just don't know what to do with this whole grace thing. That was Saul. And so Saul took up the ministry of persecution. What a crazy ministry. He was a zealous persecutor displayed how he persecuted people. You read the, you ever wondered why Paul could write this incredible letter of freedom we call the book of Galatians? You know why that is? Because he was the most in bondage person that we have in all of scripture. He was completely bound up. And so when he got set free, he's going, man, flee that stuff. Don't hang out in legalism. Get rid of it. You're free. And he actually thought that as he was persecuting believers, that he was doing God a service. And he could do it with a clear conscience. And I believe that's why God had so much mercy on on Saul. He was doing the wrong thing. We would look at it and go, man, God should have just dealt with him. Be careful when you say things like that or think things like that. Because when you do, you condemn yourself. That's one of the things about the grace of God. If you love the grace, anybody here love the grace of God? I love the grace of God. If you love the grace of God, you need to be gracious yourself. If you love the mercy of God, you need to be merciful yourself. If you love the freedom that you have in Christ, then you need to let other people be free to figure it all out because you didn't know it all when you got saved either. It's one of the beauties of understanding God's grace is to know that he deals with each one of us according to the knowledge that we have. The amount of light that you have that's flooded into your life, that's what God holds you accountable to. He doesn't hold you accountable to the whole sum, the total, and the knowledge. Until you know it, he doesn't hold you accountable to it. But as it is exposed to you, then he can say, okay, you know this is true. To him who knows it's sin, Scripture says, it's sin. So when you're walking around, you don't know it's sin. That's why when somebody comes to me and they just recently came to Christ, and they say, well, I'm doing this, 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 and this and they run through you know, four of the top ten sins, I'm going, well, I kind of expect that out of you because you didn't know Jesus a week ago. But now let me tell you, let's go to the Word and let's look at these things and go, here's what it says about that sin. Here's what it says about drunkenness. Here's what it says about fornication. Here's what it says about being a thief. And so when you share those things, now that person can go, oh, I know what God expects of me. And so there's a different level of accountability that the Lord has for us when we know that those things are sinful behaviors. Paul is about to get to that place, but he isn't quite there yet. And so he's still persecuting the church. Next guy that we're going to encounter, we'll pick up in verse 5, which is Philip. And therefore, going back to verse 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preach Christ to them. And so you can see Saul's busy persecuting, and we meet Philip, this guy who's kind of gotten pushed out. The persecution has driven him someplace that he wouldn't normally go. That's what has always happened with persecution within the church. It sends the gospel places it wouldn't normally go. It's crazy that it does that, but throughout history, that's been the story of the gospel message. When the church gets persecuted, it actually grows. The true, true church actually thrives on being dependent on God. And the more dependent the church is on God, the more we do stuff His way. So instead of being dependent on programs and systems and all the things that we can be dependent on, when we're dependent on the Holy Spirit working in us, 
because we're being persecuted and we don't have anything else to cling to, we have a tendency to actually get it right. It's a beautiful picture of how God works in us. And as he goes, he shares Christ. And then the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits and crying aloud with a voice, they came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. You see, during that time, there was a resultant joy of people being set free from all manner of things. Man, I wish the church was still focused in on that. We focus so much on the things that are wrong, and we forget about the things that are right. Isn't that true? You know, we sit here and we, we kind of fret over all the stuff that isn't going right within the church. Now, I'll give you a little secret about ministry. Probably 10 to 1, I get negative emails. And that's not, you know, not poor me. I'm just telling you that generally speaking, people complain more than people praise the Lord. It's like, praise the Lord, man, people got saved. Well, it's, you know, do we have to have blue lights? I don't like blue lights. Could you grow some hair? You don't look good on TV. who I am. <laughs> but we're like that. We have a tendency to look at the negative things instead of the wonderful things that God's doing. I'll share with you, I, I, I'm in the lobby. And this is the goodness of God. How a little young guy come up to me and he goes, I want to know Jesus. So twice today, people going out the door I got a chance to pray with people to receive Christ. So we should be going like this for that. Not for me, for him. He's good. There's lots to be joyous about, okay? And Philip's doing this and people are getting saved and the church is going, amen. Instead of, I hate blue lights. You know, we have the same cookies and the coffee shop that we had last week. <laughs> so we worry about the lamest things, don't we? I'm guilty too. I'm not picking on anybody. There are times I'm like, oh, Jeff, you knucklehead. We need to have joy in the Lord. There's great things happening in the kingdom if we stop long enough like Philip does to see him. That's the beauty of the, of the life of Philip. Change was happening, and he was excited about the change. But you know what happens in religion? People get bummed out about change. I have been sitting in that same... Somebody sat in the seat that I always sit in, in the pew. And they freak out. They come to me. It's like, where did these people come from? Well, they got saved. Well, could you tell them to get saved somewhere else? Because they're sitting in my seat in the, you know, we, we worry about the weirdest things. But Philip was just excited to be used of the Lord. And that people were being healed. And he's like, hallelujah. And the city was filled with great joy. All he was doing was preaching the simple gospel message. As he commissions people to hear that message... It was their understanding of it and where they went with it that mattered. And so as we see the gospel begin to go forth, it makes it now into Samaria. Verse 9, we meet this guy, Simon the deceiver. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city. Now, be careful because in the original language, it's only giving you a little bit of the timeline here. It's not like he quit practicing sorcery, but his job previous to this was sorcery is the issue. In other words, he's a sorcerer, and that's how he's made his living. And he astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. <laughs> There's a lot of folks like that on TV, claiming that they're someone great. And frankly, a lot of what they say is sorcery. To whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man has a great power of God. Can I tell you that because you can fill up a stadium is not a sign that you're anointed of God? 
It can be a bunch of hocus-pocus. It could be nothing more than you're a really good orator. And the way that you can tell is by how much of the word is actually spoken by that person. And when there's no word, don't bother. It is the word that transforms lives. It's not somebody who can put on a great show. Well, this man claimed to be great, and he put on a great show. Astonished people. Matter of fact, so much so that they even actually began to say, this, this man who, whom they call all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying this man has great power. And they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. There are people who have been bilking people out of millions and millions of dollars that have been doing so for a very long time. And God's allowed it. God hasn't shut them down. Because every once in a while, maybe a scripture or two comes out of their mouths and the Lord says, I'm going to let my word go forth and do exactly what I sent it to do. But make no mistake, God doesn't miss who those guys are. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, notice the difference. He preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. So that would be the actual word. And Jesus, that's the actual gospel. Both men and women were baptized. And then Simon himself also believed. And again, please be very careful here. It doesn't say that he believed unto salvation. It says that he believed that something was going on that was different with these guys. Because he very clearly, from the rest of the passage, is still an unbeliever. But he believed that something was happening. He did not believe unto salvation. And then he was baptized. Can I tell you that people get baptized even though they're not saved? They believe something, but they're not believing on the only begotten Son of God. They might be believing in religion. They might be believing that, you know, mom got baptized, so, so should I. There's a lot of reasons that people believe, but you need to believe on the only begotten Son of God. And you do, need to believe in the gospel in order to be saved. That's a very different kind of belief. It's not in religion. It's not in church. It's not in miracles. Can I tell you that there are people that have apparently done miracles that are not saved? Because Satan can also do miracles, right? He's so good at what he does, which is mimicking God, that he has put people on this planet very specifically to deceive many. So much so that your Bible says that were the days not shortened, even the very elect of God would be deceived. That's how, that's how crafty the wiles of the enemy are. And so Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs that were done. And here we now come to this incredible picture. And now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This is a very beautiful picture of people being saved, being baptized, and then receiving a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the infilling to overflowing of the Holy Spirit. Two, two very different things. One happens when you're saved, the other happens when you ask for it. And so that happens in this passage. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. In other words, they were believers. These people who had come to faith because Philip is preaching the gospel message. They heard the gospel message. They believed the gospel message. And they got saved, though Simon Magus did not do that. They were baptized. Notice this. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he said, that is an awesome money opportunity. I see a business right here. Matter of fact, I think I can franchise this. I can op open up Simon's super sorcery shops, and uh, we'll have people come in, and I'll learn what it is that they're doing and how they do it, and I'll do it the same way they do it, and there you go. You got some Holy Spirit in you. 
And so he's saying, money. Saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money will perish with you. Because you have thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Family of God. The gift of God cannot be purchased at any price. It is a free gift to those who ask. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. The daughters of God, the people of God, the beloved of God. It's free. You can't buy it. It's not for sale. Not salvation and not the power that comes with the Holy Spirit. You cannot purchase it. It's a free gift. And so he tries to buy something that's a gift. That's an insult, isn't it, to God? God's saying it's free. I just want you to believe. And he's saying, well, I don't want it for that reason. I want to be able to use it for my own personal gain. So I want to go to a class and learn how to distribute the power of the Holy Spirit so I can make money off of it. Can I tell you, there's an awful lot of churches that have pastors in the pulpit that that's exactly the case with them. They went to a school, they learned how to become a pastor so that they could have a job, and there's not one ounce of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. I've met them, I've talked to them. They don't even believe the gospel message themselves. I've actually had pastors tell me that everyone gets saved. If so, the gospel's a lie. Because Jesus preached more on hell than he did on heaven. Amen? So if nobody can go to hell, then I don't know why Jesus would have preached on it. That's someone who doesn't understand, doesn't have a fear of the Lord. Your money will perish with you. You have neither a part nor a portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. You see, it's a heart issue. For Simon, as he's trying to make money on this, and so he gives him an opportunity, and notice what he says, verse 22, Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray that God, if perhaps through your heart you may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Don't ever let yourself get in that place to where you are attempting to fool God with a wicked heart. Because God sees it. God likes us to be honest with him. Because we can't fool him. So it's way better to be honest with him and just tell him how it is. God, I'm a mess, and I need help. God completely understands that, and he is the one who answers those who will ask. And so this door that's opened up, it goes first to the Jew, goes to the Samaritan, to the Gentile. It, you see this picture of how this goes forth, and you have within it, you have these wonderful things that are going on in the church and people are getting saved and at the same time you have the enemy coming against it and you have people trying to abuse it. it it's totally a picture of the gospel in our world today. The same exact things exist in our world today. They may look a little different but the principle is very much the same. People trying to make merchandise of the flock of God. Paul would write to the church at Corinth there in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as in sincerity, but as from God we speak it in the sight of God in Christ. Jude tells us, Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the error of, of Balaam, and, and they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Jesus himself said, Look, you guys are selling these doves. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. We need to come to God begging for mercy and grace and know that he gives it as a free gift. And there's no way we can buy any of it. He's not impressed by our giving. He's not impressed by our service. He wants those things to be done out of a, of a sincere heart. It's like what we do for the Lord, we do because we love God. Not because we think we can impress him or we think we can buy his favor or the more of this or the more of that we do, somehow we end up in a better stead with him. That's just ridiculous. Nothing we have does God need. Do you know that? There's not a thing you have that God actually needs. Everything you have already belongs to him. And so whatever you give back to him, you're just giving him back his stuff. 
Time, talent, and treasure, it's already all his. And he gives us the blessing of being able to worship him by freely giving of those things back to him because we recognize they're his. Not that we earn his favor by going, well, God, here's my money, or God, here's my time, or here's the talents you gave me. I just want you to know, uh, you know, I've gotten really good at these things, and and I want to help out your kingdom. No, we bless the Lord because he first blessed us. We love the Lord because he first loved us. We serve the Lord because he first served us. We offer our lives as living sacrifice. What did Paul say in Romans 12? Because it's just plain reasonable to do so. It's a reasonable service. It just makes sense. He's been so good to us, why would we not be good back to him? Not that we're doing something that, you know, man, you got me, you're sure good God now. God doesn't need us. He wants us. He loves us. And our relationship is built on that love. Simon expresses a concern. Verse 24, Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. The dude's kind of getting it. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. Found out. Bad deal. Can I tell you that some people just are afraid of being found out and so they respond this way? Make sure that when you get found out that you respond with real repentance so that the real work that has to happen happens to you. And so verse 25, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise. And as he, as he rises, he, he says, go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he's heading to the south, southwest, and, and he's in this desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man from Ethiopia, a eunuch, with great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. And so this guy's a seeking guy. He, he's already looking for the Lord to speak into his life. And he's sitting back in his chariot and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So this is an interesting thing. So here's a guy from Ethiopia. He he comes from northern Africa and and he's this Ethiopian eunuch. He's the carrier of the treasury of a queen. And he's reading from a scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip's jogging behind the chariot. You can, it's kind of a funny scene, actually. So Philip's been preaching, and people have been getting saved, and people have get, been getting healed, and it's almost like, I can't let this one get away. And he's like, he's running after the chariot. Like, and he's listening, and the dude's reading from the prophet Isaiah. Okay, I'll run up on him. And so he runs up, and he says, I heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? This is a great picture for us. You're going to have times in your life when you're going to come upon someone who has a Bible and they've been reading it and they'll tell you, yeah, I've been reading the Bible. Do you understand what you've been reading? Tell them about it. That's like the major open door. Do you actually know what that says? It's amazing to me how many people own a Bible and they've read it a little bit. They have no idea what it means. It's a closed book to them because the Holy Spirit has not indwelt them yet. So they're, they're like, it, to them, it's just head knowledge. And God's working on it and wants to use you to bring them into that right relationship. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? It's where you come in. See, here's Philip the evangelist responding to the gospel. And his response to the gospel is, I want everybody to know Jesus. And so he's running after this chariot. Would have been a hilarious, he's... he's taken his tunic and pulled it up and tied it around his waist. He's being completely undignified. His legs are now showing. He's doing anything he can to run after this guy. I've got to tell him about Jesus. And it appears in the original language that he's actually running and talking at the same time. Like the eunuch, you know, the eunuch hasn't stopped. The chariot's still going. Hey, do you actually know you're reading? Hey, could you slow down a little bit? Like your chariot's kind of fast. And finally, the chariot stops. 
And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And all of a sudden, the Lord sends one of his angels to speak into this man's life. An angel of the Lord comes upon him and says, I want you to go and get near this guy. In verse 32, we pick up, and here's where the man is. And the place in Scripture wherein he read was this. And guess what it is? It's the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. It's the number one passage in all of the Old Testament talking about Messiah, about Jesus Christ. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. This is Isaiah 53. It's verses 7 and 8. As a lamb before its shearer is silent. What did Jesus say to Pilate? Nothing. Zero. And so he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth. This is messianic. So here's this guy from Ethiopia in a chariot heading away from Jerusalem, having had come to Jerusalem to to bring a gift probably to the temple. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Oh my. This is like the perfect setup. Well, let me tell you who this is. Of himself or some other man. And then Philip said, and he opened his mouth in the beginning of the scripture and preached Jesus to him. That's why knowing your Bible in the Old Testament is a beautiful thing to know. Because people sometimes are afraid of the New Testament because they know that Jesus dude is in that. So they read the other books. It's like, well, I like the Old Testament because it's old. And they'll tell you things like that. It's like, well, it's more historically accurate. You know, the New Testament is polluted. So you take them to the Old Testament. And you take them to Isaiah 52 and 53. And you take them to Psalm 22 and Psalm 16. You you take them to Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 12. You take them to the book of Genesis to chapter 7 or maybe to chapter 3. And you say, "Uh, who do you think that is? I don't know. Well, let me tell you about them. You do exactly the same thing that Philip the Evangelist does. In verse 36, notice what it says. And as they went down the road, they came and they got to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? This dude has got it. He's like, not only do I want to know Jesus, I want to be baptized right now. And they go and be baptized. And by the way, if you're here and you haven't been baptized and it's not near a time of baptism, you want to be baptized, we'll find some water. We'll dunk you. We'll take you down to Torrance Beach. We may lose you, but we'll make sure that you get fully dunked. And then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. In other words, he's saying, look, if it's real, of course you can be baptized. That's why we always ask everybody, have you received Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? We don't want to baptize you, and you think you get saved by baptism. So we ask, have you believed that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Because what you're doing in baptism is just simply saying yes and amen to what you've already declared with your life. I am a child of God. I have been washed, and I have been raised in new life, and I'm saying I'm a follower of Jesus. That's all baptism is. There's nothing magic about it. It is an identification with that which you've already done, which is to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are saved. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the right answer. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and he baptized him. What a beautiful picture uh, of how God works in our lives so very, very often. And this is real faith. This is being faithful. And now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more, and he went his way rejoicing. It's rejoicing that his sins have been washed away. He's rejoicing that he now has a relationship with God. And Philip's gone. But Philip was found as Azotus, passing through as he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. 
So now he's gone. He headed south towards Gaza. He would have passed back by Jaffa. He would have headed north to Caesarea. And here we see now the full and complete picture of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 has come into view because here's what's happened. It began in Jerusalem. It then went into Judea. It then from there went to Samaria, came back again, went south, and now an Ethiopian has it and he's heading back to Africa. So the gospel is going to the uttermost parts of the world by now. And as he heads up to Caesarea, Caesarea is the headquarters of the Roman government. It's the place that Herod built his fantastic palace. If you travel with us to Israel, we'll actually go to Herod's palace. It's part submerged in the Mediterranean Sea. You'll see the Hippodrome where he used to have chariot races. It's still there. And so in Acts chapter 8, we find the Ethiopian. That's the same place as Cush. That's the descendants of Ham, right? Saul of Tarsus, who we're going to see in chapter 9, who becomes the Apostle Paul, is a Jew and therefore a descendant of Shem. When you find the Gentiles that come to Christ, they're the descendants of Jacob. So after the flood, who's left? The descendants of Shem and Ham and Japheth, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts. So everybody. Four different men, four different responses. So I'm going to have worship team come back out. The question for you tonight is you know the gospel. Maybe there's some of you here tonight. I'll bring some of the pastors forward so they'll start making their way down here. The question for you the question for me, the question for us is what's your response to the gospel? If you're saved, you're here and you know Jesus, that's the first step. That's the one step that has to be made for all of us. But there are subsequent steps that we're supposed to take, and we see them here. Because for Philip the evangelist, he wasn't content in just knowing the gospel he wanted to share the gospel. And once he started sharing the gospel, he got pretty rabid about sharing the gospel. And he's going to head north. He's going to end up in Caesarea, Philippi, or in Caesarea Maritima. And eventually what's going to happen there is Cornelius, the captain of the Roman guard, is going to get saved. And from there, the gospel's going into all of the Roman world. So the question for us is, just like with Philip, remember he's jogging behind the chariot? He took it as a personal challenge to go after lost people. As God spoke to him, he said, that guy in that chariot, that Ethiopian, who's undoubtedly not from around here, he may not know the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to run after him and share the gospel with him. And so for each of us tonight, it's really kind of a, a night of a fresh decision. If you know the Lord, then take the gospel and go to our Jerusalem, South Bay. And if you're being used in Jerusalem, why don't you try going to Judea, which maybe that's downtown or maybe that's Long Beach or you know, maybe you could even say Samaria, maybe Orange County or maybe the valley, San Fernando Valley. But once that's happened, then ask God to give you a heart for the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's somewhere that maybe you don't ever go, but God wants you to go. And so I'm going to encourage you as the pastors come forward as we close in worship that you seek what you're supposed to do with that good news, with the gospel. If you haven't received him, come. And receive Christ tonight. Take that first step like the eunuch did. Like the apostle Paul will take when he goes from Saul to Paul that we see next in chapter 9. And if you've received him already, then why don't you be a vessel for that gospel going out. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for the message of the cross, Lord, which is the gospel of salvation unto those of us who believe and pray tonight that your spirit would move in this place or to stir up gifts in your church to set people free from the bondage of sin. Lord, to call the lost to repentance and to call the found to good works. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do in these remaining minutes, Lord, as we worship you and praise you. God, would you do a work in our hearts to ignite us with the same gospel, that same salt that was poured out in Jerusalem. Lord, would you pour us out into the world around us. We love you. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's worship